Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Today we get to continue our revival sermon series. I'm very excited about today. I've been uh, sort of sitting with today's message for about a year, and it sort of fit, it sort of didn't, so I'm going to just jam it in here. It's going to be a little different than the previous couple. The previous couple, we've kind of been doing this big overview of revival, and today what we're going to do is zoom in on one scene with Jesus. And it's rich and it's deep, but it's a lot, and it's a lot all at once, and so we're going to get moving and just get right into it. But what we're talking about in revival and what we've said in the last couple of weeks is revival is really this, this lamplight faith. We have this little lamplight we showed you when, when the Bible, it's a lamp unto my feet. Bible would say that revival is light coming to darkness. It's a refreshing of the spirit. It's this fresh outpouring. And so I just want to put this image back in your head as we start, and we'll come back to it all the way at the end. But this is what revival sort of looks like. It's the beginning embers of light returning to something that has been dark, Okay. So now, John chapter 8, we're going to get into a a scene from the life of Jesus, and we'll see where we go from there. You can read it with me on the screen. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. So the question we're going to be asking today is, what was Jesus doing in the dust? What is Jesus doing on the ground? What is Jesus writing? Anybody who's read this story goes, and and at some point asks that question, what is, okay, what is he doing there? What does he mean? What is happening? We're going to get there. Is he doodling? Is he is he's like he's just wasting time? He's putting his grocery list down? What is it? It seemed to have an effect, though, didn't it? So we're going to do a lot of context and a lot of backstory. We're going to get to the point. So first, let's be clear. The Pharisees, they're trying to trap Jesus. They, the Pharisees look like scoundrels after the fact. We see them now and we go, those Pharisees, they're so anti-Jesus. In the moment, they look like they're doing the right thing. They're protecting the faith from this interloper, this outsider who's coming in and saying these radical things. The Pharisees are doing the right thing. They're trying to protect the faith. Jesus is unexpected. He doesn't fit the mold. His approach to faith confounds them in every way. It seems to undo the things they've been taught with all the laws and the structures. Jesus doesn't just color outside the lines. He shreds the coloring books and throws the colors in the air, and they're like, this is not how this is supposed to work. And so the Pharisees are rightly suspicious and a little concerned. So they determine to root out the threat, which the scripture says they bring a trap. 
They're trying to get him to a place where they can accuse him of something and go ahead and get rid of this threat to this faith that they claim. So let's do some Hebrew history. Dealing with many sins, there's different ways of dealing with sins as you go through the the, the law and the oral law that was governing the people. But let's just go strictly with adultery. There was the, the history here was the man and woman had to be brought to a certain temple gate, and then the witnesses would be assembled. So they had to have a witness, and then there would be like a ceremony and a judgment. Leviticus 20 would tell us that if guilty, then they'd be put to death. As part of this, the, the priest in the temple would write down the law that was broken, and the names of those who were accused. They would write anywhere that wasn't permanent. So there wasn't like a prescribed place they had to write. It just wasn't a permanent thing. So imagine, it's like the, the ancient Hebrew whiteboard. They're writing something down so everybody can see what's been said, and at the end of it, they'll just erase it and go to the next case. Most common was they would write in the dust on the floor of the temple. So our eyebrows start going up. We go, okay, we're starting to see a connection. We'll come back to that. What's important now is to go, so now we have that little connection, but come back from John 8, where we just were, to back to John 7. John 7 tells us that this was the time of the feast of the tabernacles, or the booths. This is when uh, the Jews would celebrate that when they were out in the wilderness, so they leave their homes, they build a booth out somewhere, like a little tent, and they live in a tent for a week. They celebrate that God was with them in the wilderness. So that's what's happening right before this story we pick up in John 8. The Hebrew calendar tells us in the Hebrew calendar, you can look at Leviticus 23, you see the whole calendar, that the Day of Atonement, you know, you're like, oh, there's a lot of things happening right now. The Day of Atonement was a week before the Feast of the Tabernacles. So my wife and I, our anniversary is uh, July 23rd. Her birthday is July 30th. I only remember each of them by the other, right? So every time I get to the 23rd, I'm like, it's our anniversary. Then I go, oh, gosh, I didn't get her birthday. But like, you got to get to work here. It's always a week apart. No matter where we're going, those, those two things are kind of rooted a week apart. Leviticus 23 says the festival of the, the, of the booths is always one week after the Day of Atonement. And they move around on the calendar, but they're always a week apart. There's a reason. So the week before... The men come holding stones, which is the last day of the festival of the booths, the festival of the tabernacles. It was just the day of atonement. And what would happen is basically at the end of the day of atonement, the priest, the high priest, would do a series of, of, of baths, of, of ceremonial cleansings, mikvah it's called. And they would get in, sometimes 11 times, they'd get in and out of this thing. It's, they immersed themselves in the cleansing pool as a way of, of signifying to the people of Israel that God is cleansing them. And you have to remember, the priest... In the ancient time, the priest was the go-between. So you would bring your sacrifice not to God directly, but to the priest. You'd bring your confession to the priest. And that's how that kind of world worked. Jesus became the high priest, the once and for all true priest. And so now we go straight to Jesus. We don't have to go through a man or a temple. He is those things. So we've updated those things. But back in the day, you had to go to the priest. And so he was doing these ceremonial cleansings on the last day of the Day of Atonement. And he would say this as he did it. We'll put it on the screen so you can say it. O Yahweh, the mikvah, which means the, the, the cleansing bath, the, the mikvah of Israel, just as the mikvah cleansed me on this day, may the Holy One, the Messiah, blessed be his name, cleanse all Israel when he comes. So this is what he would say to the people as the closing kind of thing on the Day of Atonement. Everyone knew what this was. They would hear it every year. And they would all know that it's loosely based on something in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 17, 13 says this. Lord, you are the hope of all Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust 
because they've forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Now, so, so go back and what's the, the most accurate kind of Hebrew of Jeremiah 17, 13. We'll put that up. It says, O Yahweh. So when it, when it says for us, you are the hope of Israel, the most accurate kind of like original, the immerser of Israel, the cleansing bath. You're the immerser of Israel. All those who leave your way shall be publicly shamed. Those who turn aside from my ways will have their names written in the dust and blotted out. They've departed from Yahweh, the fountain of the waters of life. This is saying that the mikvah, the cleansing water of Israel, is none less than God. That's what this is saying. So the atonement happens. The priest does it on their behalf. But he goes, ultimately, cleansing comes from God alone. So remember, this day of atonement where these things were said was one week prior to this festival that they're closing up in John 8. This passage is still fresh on the hearts of the people. On the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So they've just done this, this cleansing bath. The priest is saying this cleansing, this atonement, this salvation, it comes from God alone. And Jesus stands up at the last day, right after the priest has said this, and Jesus says, I'm living water. And you could have heard a pin drop. So in a very real, subtle, like it's subtle enough that, that you can't quite say he's saying what he's saying, but he's clearly saying what he's saying. In a really subtle way, Jesus is saying, I'm Messiah. The one you're waiting for is here, and it's me. I bring atonement via living water because I am God. Jesus claims to be providing living water, and as a result, the Pharisees are aghast. The same way we might be a little uncomfortable if someone stood up here and said, I'm the second coming. We go, okay, here we go. How do we get rid of this guy? We have to stop him. That's what they're saying. We have to stop him. So they set a trap. So they go to find him in the temple. And we read in John 8 that he's teaching in the temple. Pharisees bring this woman accused of adultery. Note that they don't bring a man. That's a violation of the oral law. They also don't mention any witnesses. There's no mention of witnesses being brought forward. They just bring her, which is another violation of oral law. You have to have a man. You need both parties, and you need to have witnesses. They simply present her, and they do so because it's a clever trap for Jesus. It's actually a really clever trap. Either Jesus is going to commission her stoning, which would undermine his claims as the one coming to bring atonement, as the one with compassion and the ability to forgive sinners. He's the healer. So he's just going to coldly allow her to be stoned? Or the other side is Jesus will say she's free to go, which would undermine God's law in Leviticus 20, because if she was caught in this and found guilty, then she has to be stoned. So one way or another, they think we got him. Either he's going to show himself not to be this great man of compassion and people will stop following him, or he's going to actually violate God's law and then we got him. We can arrest him. But remember what we read together. They bring her, and he does not answer them at first. They come and say, look, 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 Jesus, stop teaching. He's teaching in a room with people in it. They interrupt, they bring a woman, humiliating for her, and they say, we got this, you got to deal with this right now. And he looks at them. And he starts writing. And they have to look at each other like, what? Okay, what's happening here? So they remind him, no, no, hey, up here, buddy. We got her. And then it starts getting interesting, doesn't it? What did he write? 
So scripture doesn't say, so we can't say for certainty. But looking at the calendar, and seeing that the Day of Atonement in Jeremiah 17, 13 are fresh in everyone's heart, Jeremiah 17, 13, what did it say? Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord. Let me offer this. They accuse and bring him a trap. And it's fair to wonder if Jesus doesn't start writing their names down. Along the oral laws being broken. Remember, you have to write the accused and the law. So it's fair to wonder that Jesus isn't writing each of their names down. And then he's writing the law that was broken. Brought no witnesses. Brought no man. As if, you ever heard of a false police report? That's a crime. You can't file a false police report. It's almost like he begins to write their things down. And it says, Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, having written some things on the ground, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Makes eye contact. And it says again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. They protest. They continue pressing him. And he says, let anyone who doesn't have sin, which maybe he's just given them the evidence that they do, cast the first stone. So he gets back to his writing. Maybe he's writing each name as slowly as he can. Maybe he's making eye contact. Josephus, let me get you on here. Catches another's glance. They're trying not to look at him, and he gets their name down too. And the Pharisees are then having a slow motion realization that they've fallen into their own trap. That in their haste to trap him, they've let go of their own convictions. Jesus turns the table. They didn't bring their accusations lawfully. False police report. He isn't excusing the sin either. So people get this, all kinds of backwards. They're like, well, Jesus just excuses whatever. Doesn't say he did that. He's not excusing the sin. Jesus, if we zoom out a little bit, we start to get the sense he's declaring a mistrial. He says, this is not proper evidence. This is not properly brought to her. She doesn't have any business here. You don't have the right witnesses. This is, not, this is a mistrial. Jesus declares a mistrial, says there's no admissible evidence. There are no witnesses. What do you want me to do about it? This, nothing's going to happen here. So it says they left. The oldest first. Maybe they're the leaders and the younger were just going to defer to them and their leadership. Maybe, I want to think, maybe they've heard this passage on the Day of Atonement from Jeremiah 17. Maybe they've just heard it more. At bar mitzvah, when a, a boy becomes a man at 13 years old, he begins to participate in all of these experiences, these feast days, these do, days of atonement. He, he would experience this once he tra uh, transitions from childhood to adulthood at 13. And so if he's 15, he's heard it twice. He's, he's vaguely familiar with this passage about the mikvah and the cleansing and the, the stones from Jeremiah 17. He, he maybe have heard that in, in grammar school, but he's not as clear. But if you're 45 years old, you've heard it 33 times now. And you know exactly what the scripture says. So I want to wonder if maybe the older left first because they were more familiar with Jeremiah 17, which is, remember, there's no Bible in your pocket. There's no phone with unlimited translations. They kept it in here. So they had to memorize it to know it, and when they heard it, they would commit to it because there wasn't a written Bible they could just go check out.
Maybe it was quicker recognition by the older. Maybe their sin list was just longer. Maybe Jesus is writing on the ground and he's including other things he knows that have been done. And the longer we live, the more we stumble. Either way, it's checkmate by Jesus. They bring a trap, he spins it around on them, and it's beautiful. Because he's both upheld the law in Leviticus 20 and displayed radical compassion to a sinner in her lowest moment. He's done both. The one thing they thought he couldn't do, he had to pick one, he said, watch me. And he makes a third way. So to the woman, let's speak to the woman for a minute. We're talking about revival. This is all about revival. What is happening here? This woman has been brought to them essentially dead in shame. Her life has been taken in shame. Her reputation has been ruined. He's teaching in the temple, we said. There's people everywhere. Her whole community is there. She's dragged into the meeting. Is she half-dressed? Is she just pulled out of bed? Is she even guilty? She's been shamed in public. Her reputation is ruined. Imagine the look she's getting from the people watching. And so what does revival look like to her? What does coming back to life look like to this woman? It's a fresh outpouring of the Spirit, we say. Jesus offers revival here. Jesus offers a fresh outpouring of life upon her. Because her life has been cut short in this instance. She's either going to be put to death or released to shame forever. And it will be her undoing. People won't deal with her. They'll call her unclean. It'll be a problem. And Jesus says, I refuse to condemn you. No witness, no evidence, no trial. Can't condemn you. There's no trial. He doesn't say you're innocent, does he? He says, I don't condemn you. He offers a, a different path. True freedom and true revival is what he offers her. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. What's the path for revival for her? What's the path to new life for her? It's walking away from the things that were darkness and walking instead in the things of light. It's realizing that she got a second chance in a moment where maybe she shouldn't have. And he says, go and sin no more. Go and live a life worth living. Quit living in the untruth. Quit living in the lie. Quit living in the darkness. True life awaits. And you hear echoes then of Jeremiah 17. You start hearing echoes. I came not to condemn but to bear sins. I am the living water. I'm the healing water. I'm the atoning water. I'm the cleansing one. So live in the light. Live in the truth. Live in the cleansing I bring you. Live brand new. The woman has shown how her sin was her death. And he shows her what it looks like to honor the law and still live in grace. Go and sin no more. The Pharisees are being offered revival too. I don't know that they saw it. But they're being offered revival because they're being shown that their legalism leads to death too. That it can't accomplish the full function of God. He shows them what it looks like to honor the law and promote grace. There's freedom in his way. Do they see it? You and I are offered the same thing every day. John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through it. I don't know what shame you brought in today. I don't know what pain you brought and what guilt you brought, what thing you wish no one would ever find out. Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. I came to free you from the shame that has you standing in front of the judge and jury with all the stones ready to throw. I came to release you from that, to offer you a new way, and that way is to come with me to go and sin no more. Hmm. 
You don't have to leave with the shame you brought. It can be distant shame. It can be last night. You don't have to leave with it. So we started with lamplight faith. Started with this idea of purging darkness and replacing it with light. I don't want to leave this passage because we could end there and we'd have a moment, we'd have a little emotional thing where we're releasing our shame and our guilt, and that's good. But in, in John 8, we're, we're going to see something. Remember, John 7 is this feast. First, there's the Day of Atonement, and then there's this feast of the tabernacles. And there's this thing that happens during the Feast of the Tabernacles. In the center of the temple of Jerusalem, they build these enormous, uh, like, they're just candles. But they're these, they call them lamps. They would build these entire 75-foot-tall candles. They would use the priest's old garments as the wick, and they would put pure olive oil as the burning liquid. And they would construct these 75-foot-tall candles in the center of town. They'd have a series of ladders that the young priests, you got to let, you know, the young priests, you go do it, buddy. They'd let the young priests climb up there to replenish the oil and trim the wick and make sure it functioned. But for the entirety of the Feast of the Tabernacles, while they were out of their homes and living in the wilderness, understanding, you know, reminding themselves what it was like to be in the wilderness, the light would burn the whole time, day and night. Why? They wanted to be shown, God wanted to show them, that even when you're out in the wilderness, my light will find you. You can't escape his light. And so while the people were practicing this feast of the tabernacles, they're living in tents, the light is always on 24-7 for the full seven days. I have a picture of a rendering of what it would have looked like. Temple walls are enormous. And so all throughout Jerusalem, you would have had light in a time with no electricity, at night you would have been able to see anything you wanted to see as these enormous candelabras burned at night. For the people, they had a name for these candles, these giant lights. They called them, because it's what they functioned as for that week, they called them the light of the world. In darkness, there will be light. In the wilderness, we still have God's presence. So Jesus sends this woman on her way. He says, go and sin no more. And then he begins to teach again. And John records the next thing he says in John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the bookend to the story is Jesus is pulling from these festivals. Jesus is pulling these pictures that the Jews have long since looked to for hope. And Jesus says, I am that hope now. Jesus is the light. In the wilderness of life, Jesus is saying, revival is offered through me. In your lowest moment, in your greatest shame, in the darkness of your sin, I am the light of the world. We don't need rituals and candles. We don't need priests. In any of this history, you have me now. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will know the light of life. What is revival but the fresh outpouring of life upon God's people? And he says, if you just follow me, if you release all of the, you release the shame, you release the ritual, you release the legalism, you release that and you just follow me, you will have the light of life forever. You cannot find wilderness that can escape my light. You cannot find darkness too great for me. You cannot find your way out of my grace because I am here for you now. Jesus comes as restorer and redeemer. Jesus is revival. 
and the stones of guilt and shame fall in that moment. What Jesus is saying to this woman and what Jesus is saying to you now is that you cannot outsin his grace. That he came to be your reviver. And so the, the sound we need to hear as we approach Jesus, the sound we should hear is the sound of stones thudding against the ground. No longer are names being written in the dust, but the slate being cleaned as he takes the penalty for our sins and our shame. Let the stones fall. Jesus, there is no condemnation. Instead, you have hope, and you have light, and you have life. And all it requires of you is to release the shame. Release the chains that hold you back. Release the things you brought with you that make you unworthy. You're not unworthy. True revival is on offer for each and every individual. So individually, we take Jesus up on his offer, and then corporately, we chase that same heartbeat. Jesus, make us more like you. Jesus, help us be the light of the world. How will we revive this city? How can we revive this nation? How can we revive our church? How can we revive our neighborhood? It starts with us living out light of the world faith. Lamplight faith, day-to-day faith, we live it out every single day, but we begin to be the light of the world, the extension of the hands and feet of Jesus, and we invite revival, not only in our prayer and our begging for the Spirit to freshly outpour upon us, we invite revival when we are revival on behalf of Christ to others, when we're welcoming people into his light, we're inviting people into his grace, when we're dropping stones and celebrating sinners made whole again. That's where revival comes. So as you seek Jesus, As you follow Jesus, as you go and sin no more, may revival be yours today. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have sent us the light of the world. You've sent us living water. God, my prayer for our people today, for everyone in this room, Father, may we release everything less than you. You've done it. You've done all the work. You've finished all the courses. You've done all the rituals, all the things. There's no more hoops, nothing to jump through. Father, may we seek you and you alone. May we find that you're the cleanser, that you're the atoner, that you're the reviver. Father, no matter what darkness we walked in with, I pray that we would open it up to you and allow your light to shine through again. God, for the hearts in here that might be heavy, we pray for your lightning of grace. For those that need mercy, may they feel that wash over them. Lord, for those who are celebrating your goodness, God, give them an extra outpouring of your spirit in this moment. Father, thank you for Jesus. To send him in a tangible way, to upend the status quo, to show us the way to true life, to find that third path through every scenario. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he did on the cross, for his resurrection, for what it means about who we are. God, revive us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.